Thank you for your word, Lord, that it, it is uh, so fundamental to our lives. And we ask you, Lord, as, as Jeremy speaks to us this morning, that you would anoint him by your spirit and enable him to speak your words with confidence and clarity and to be, bring an encouragement and a provocation to us, Lord, yeah. uh, about your word. I pray that you'd, bring, you'd give him that clarity and that you'd give us hearts that are open to uh, listen to your word and to respond, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for praying for me. I appreciate being prayed for. Uh, it really helps. Although I do have to say, I think I'd rather have been introduced by Danny, to be honest. So I'm just feeling a little bit sort of slightly less cuddly. Um, anyway. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I, didn't, I thought you were outside. Um, if you've not been here for a few weeks, you probably won't know that um, we've missed two or three weeks in our series on being rooted. Um, we had a leaders' conference here last week, and the week before that had JB Cindy speaking to us. Um, but we're in a series since uh, January on being rooted as disciples of Jesus Christ, being grounded and firmed up and solid foundations in various things. And if you remember, the last one of these was being rooted in the Holy Spirit, which is an excellent talk uh, which Steve Thomas gave. But my um, message this morning, my title is Rooted in the Word of God. Now, honesty time here. I'm going to ask you to put your hands up and vote. Um, how many people here think at some point I'm going to exhort you to read your Bible more? Okay, good. Of those who voted, or maybe if that's not you, how many people think, oh heck, yes, I do need to read my Bible more? Very good. And how many of you thought, I really don't need another talk on reading my Bible more? I've heard quite enough of those. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. I appreciate your honesty. Um, Well, I'm going to try not to do that, at least overtly, this morning. But I do want us to get a hold of the importance, the vitality, the the bottom line essential thing that the Word of God is to us. I'm going to start by just talking about what we mean by the Word of God, go on a little bit and try and persuade you why it's important, and then I'm going to throw out, it's going to get a bit more practical, throw out some practical ideas, some of which may land for you, some of which may not, about how to get a hold of this, or rather for how it's get a hold of us. Reality is, most of you who put your hands up and admitted to the fact, and I didn't put my hand up, but I should have done, that I need to read the Bible more, um, it's a real issue for us. And there might be all sorts of reasons for that um, that we need to get through. But let's start with this this idea about the Word of God. I think in the news sheet... um, the title of the talk is given as being rooted in scripture, but, but actually the title I was given is, was about the word of God, and the word of God is broader and bigger than just the Bible. The term word of God means at least three different things, which are distinct, but not separate. They're different, but not separate. The first is Jesus Christ, the living word. In John Gospel and in other writings of John, we see this very clearly. Jesus is identified as the word, the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word 
was with God and the word was God. John chooses his words very, very carefully. To Greek thinkers, word means sort of governing principle or logic behind the whole universe. And to a Greek-speaking world, that's an outrageous claim to say that this man, Jesus Christ, is the word. But to a Jewish thinker, to a Jewish mind, it's simply synonymous with God. So that duality embodied in one person. Now, right at the end of the Bible in Revelation, John says this, and he has this amazing vision. And he sees some, and his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. We know who he's looking at. His name is... Anybody know? In Revelation 19. This vision he has. His name is the Word of God. And then it goes on to say, on his robe and his thighs he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The New Testament explicitly identifies Jesus Christ as the Word of God. The living Word. Secondly, the scripture talks about the Word of God being Words that God speaks, his utterances or his decrees, things he just says, are the word of God. Things that he speaks out. Right at creation, God speaks things into existence in Genesis 1. Quite a lot of things. God said, let there be light. And so that is seen as the word of God, but sometimes also God's word spoken through a human mouthpiece is identified with as a word of the word of God, through his prophets, for example. Jeremiah, it says this, Jeremiah 1, right at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet. And Jeremiah understandably says, ah, Sovereign Lord, I do not know, notice, how to speak. I'm too young. That's not a valid excuse, by the way, being too young, to fulfill God's call on your life. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and to say whatever I command you. And it goes on to say, the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words into your mouth. And then on numerous occasions throughout the book, as in the other prophets, it's recorded, this is what the Lord said. And this, this and this declares the Lord through Jeremiah, his mouthpiece. So it's possible the word of Lord can come to us through the mouthpiece of another human. That is identified in Scripture as the word of the Lord. But of course we also identify as the written word of God, the Scriptures as the word of God. All Scripture, Timothy says, is God-breathed. Incidentally, the word, and this scares the pants off of me, the word preached is also identified as the word of God. Paul says, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you, 
who believe. That's very sobering for anyone who wants to preach. So if you want to preach, just be careful with what you say. I'm trying to be careful. So listening to preaching, whether that's me or listening to a podcast or an MP3 download or whatever, can be getting the word of God into us. Go just pause for a second. I just want to reflect on these three definitions, and there are others, of, of the word of God. You see, words are important in the Bible. When something is a description, it says something essential about its nature. And we have, in the word of God as a person, the word of God as words spoken, and the word of God as words written, essentially the same description and the same nature. All three can be and are authoritative revelations of God. So as we read scripture, let's remember that we're engaging with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. But let's also remember that God can speak to us his words through the written word also. And because it's the primary way that God speaks to us through his written word, our relationship with scripture, and I will use that word advisedly, it is a relationship with the word, directly mirrors our relationship with Jesus, the word. It's just worth pausing and thinking about that. Our relationship with the word written is a pretty good mirror of our relationship with Jesus Christ the living word. That may make you feel sad, that may make you feel glad, but I think it's true. Okay, let's move on. Why bother? Why bother to be rooted in the word of God? Jesus is all I need, really. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I just need to follow him. Um, Why bother? Can I suggest a few things? First of all, Jesus was rooted in the words of scripture. His scripture was the Old Testament, so if we're a follower of Christ, we do need to be rooted in the words of scripture, simply because he and all disciples through generations afterwards always have been. But scripture makes some fairly strong claims for itself that we need to get a hold of and deal with. Scripture is different. It's not just another book to read or not along with everything else that's on my bookshelf. And if you've looked at my bookshelf, it's probably like yours, it's a very eclectic mix of things that's on there, of which this just kind of sits there if you're not careful. Okay? But it's different. Am I talking to the right people? Has anybody else got their Bible sitting on a bookshelf and there's just like, you know, gardening and football, music and a few novels, and you know, it's just, it could just be a book. But the outrageous claims of this book are that it's more, that it's different from anything else. Scripture is the supreme authoritative means by which God speaks, reveals himself, guides and directs his people. And whilst God does speak to us through all sorts of other means, other revelation is tested against scripture. Yeah. So it is that important. 
Here we go. The word of God is living and active. Now, when the Bible talks about living, it doesn't mean sort of existing somewhere. The living God means active in space and time. That means here and now doing stuff. Whenever the Bible talks about something being living, it's not in some sort of abstract sort of existence somewhere or other. It always means here, now, and doing things. And so when Paul in Colossians, sorry, the, the, the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, it's no coincidence those two words are put together. If something's living, it is active. That means it's able to do stuff. And actually, in that case, it's probably talking and referring to the word preached. And it's a very clear link in Old Testament New with the word of God linked with power to do stuff and change things, primarily us and change people. And if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, being changed is the name of the game. Is that right? Anybody's experienced that if you start to follow Jesus Christ, you will need to change. Anybody ever experienced that? You may need to change your thoughts, you may need to change your attitudes, your behaviour, your loyalties, your, what you do with your money, all sorts of stuff. It's not always pleasant, but that's part of the deal. And the word of God is an agent of change to us. <laughs> so, here we go. Let's, here's three things, three good reasons why the word of God is really important. Number one, God's word is Truth. I'm going to get a little bit philosophical here. If it doesn't land for you, that's fine. One of the great things about the Word of God is you can take it at whatever level. It will deal with and challenge the deepest philosophical notions and will bear the deepest philosophical analysis and we can receive it in simplicity to speak to our everyday needs and everything in between. Love it. Okay, truth Again, in John, is a particularly important concept. Um, all God's words are true. True in the sense that it talks about things that are true. For example, the Old Testament narratives and the Gospels and Acts talk about things that happened. So they're true in that sense. Um, there are also true things in terms of, say, wisdom or good advice. For instance, in the Proverbs, I like this one. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I think most of us know that's true. Actually, as an aside, words are powerful. Words are powerful. The word of God is powerful, but words in general are powerful. And for those of you who are wordsmiths, that that is people who love using words, writing words, whether that's writing narrative, writing scientific paper, writing poetry, lyrics, or whatever, a script, don't underestimate the power of what you write. It can bring change to people, for good or for bad. Change people's thinkings, perspectives. Words can bring hope or disillusionment. Words can build up or drag down. Words can encourage and strengthen. So those of you who who are into that, and you know that God's called you to use words, don't underestimate the power of words, um, but do recognize that God can help you to use them constructively, powerfully. But that's true. It's true. I think all of us would have 
No problem recognising that's true. But scripture makes a claim more than it is just true, that it is truth itself, which is something deeper. It's not just true, but claims to be truth itself. Your word is truth, says Jesus Christ. Your word is truth itself. And of course, Pilate challenged him by saying, what is truth? And he, the living word, was standing right in front of him as the embodiment of truth. What do we mean by the Bible being truth? It's not just that it contains true things, it does, but a whole framework of truth. A true way, if you like, of interpreting the world around us. What sorts of things does that mean? Is there a God and can he be known? This is the big questions of life. Where have we come from and where are we going? Our origins and destiny. The big questions. The word of God is truth and speaks to these things. What is a human being? All the questions of identity and personality and relationships and aesthetics and bottom line, do I matter or not? I found in the word of God. Morality and what is right and wrong and probably deeper, how do we decide what is right and wrong are within the biblical framework of truth. How we should act or not. How we should behave. Is there a right way to behave? Does it matter? Are issues addressed in the word of God? How do we know anything at all? Our epistemology, if you like, big word is in the word of God. All sorts of other things. What's good and what's evil? And how do we decide? All these big questions are questions, if we like, ultimate questions of truth. And God's word gives us a framework with which to interpret the world. It's truth in that sense. It's not just true statements. It's truth in that sense. And... Well, that's kind of under attack a bit at the moment, you know. The word of God as being true is under attack on sort of a couple of levels at the moment. There's quite a big debate, as you might be aware, about whether it's historically true or not. And those of you... Who was at the seminar in, in January about the historicity of the New Testament? Anybody out there? Yeah, I can see a few hands. Yeah. So those are those sorts of issues. Um, but there's also a wider issue of why should we take this book as being authoritative about anything when it's come out of a Middle Eastern culture a couple of thousand years ago, to, you know, first bit of it to a nomadic people, the rest of it based around a small group of people in you know, the Middle East in about 2,000 years ago and a few odd things that happened. Why should this be authoritative to 21st century culture in the Western world? Is a big question. Now, I'm not going to answer that for you, other than to say... It stands up to scrutiny, but the bottom line is there is an issue of faith involved with us taking on board the word of God and its claims. Now, it does help us to do that. Just a little approach for those who are interested in these things. If we accept this as true, 
not just true, but tr- providing a framework of truth. Okay. It's then possible to see how well everything that we see, perceive, and understand about the world fits with that. How good is the empirical fit? In other words, assume this to be true and see how well things fit with that. Scientists call that a process of inference. And there's a whole move in the philosophy of science, for example, called inference to the best explanation, which means you assume from things are to be true and you just see what fits best with it. I would contend, without going into all the details, that scripture provides more explanatory power than other competing worldviews when it comes to these issues. But you need to sort that out for yourself. Okay, moving on. First of all, truth. That's the deep one. Secondly, God's word is the way. Your word, says the psalmist, and please, if you're interested in our understanding of the word of God, read Psalm 119. It's all about the law and the word of God and what it is to us, what it is to the psalmist. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Anybody ever been anywhere where it's just completely black? Yeah. It doesn't often happen in this country. You go outside to look at the stars and all you see is a sort of... Sorry? Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. I was, I've been several times to Southern Africa, and in the, in the middle of the night, you really can't see anything at all. It doesn't happen in this country. But that, that's the picture here. When you're stumbling around, because it's completely black, and unless you've got very, very thick curtains in your room and turn out all the lights, that doesn't happen very often around here, unless you've been shut into a cupboard. Um, in which case, it's not very far you can go anyway. But the picture here is blackness and disorientation. And the word of God is a lamp to my feet, where I should step, and to my path, which is where I'm about to step. Those are two slightly different things. But God's word claims to illuminate my ability to find the way and the way I need to find. So this is all about how to live. Decision-making, choices, behaviour and actions, relationships, what to do, what not to do, moral boundaries, all those sorts of things the Word of God speaks to. This is the nitty-gritty of being a disciple of Jesus. And the word of God speaks to it all. God's word is truth. Not just true, but truth. God's word is the way. Not just a way among many, the way. An exclusive claim which we shouldn't be ashamed to make. An exclusive claim. Thirdly, God's word is life. To us, it does stuff. It does stuff. As I said before, when the Bible talks about something being living, it implies activity here and now, doing things. It doesn't just mean existing somewhere. And Jesus, when he was tempted, said, Man shall not live by bread alone because that only deals with material needs. That's just providing carbohydrates for energy. Sorry, I'm a biologist. (laughs) But on every word that comes from the mouth of God, 
Philippians quoted there talks about holding on to the word of life. Okay. Now, the various aspects to this, but I picked a few. Here's a heavy one. Being pure and keeping from sin. Okay. Sin is a one-way road to being excluded from God's presence. Praise God there's a way back. There's always a way back in Christ. There's always a way back. If you're guilty this morning, there's a way back in Christ. But let's be clear, sin is a one-way journey to exclusion from God. That's called death. So avoiding that is life. Simple, really. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, says the psalmist. Psalm 119 again. One way the word of God brings life is just to put boundaries around us to keep us from death. Because death is just the end logical outcome of a life lived away from God. Mm. Keeping in relationship with God is life. Secondly, God's word gives strength to live. I love this. 1 John 2 says this. I write to you, young men, actually I'm sure it's not only for young men, but he happened to be writing to some young men. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And it's like, in my mind, those two things are causally linked. He doesn't say you are strong because you've been eating your carbohydrates. You've been having a good workout. Because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. I think I'm justified in making that inference because Jesus overcame the evil one by using the word of God that dwelt within him. And actually, the saints overcome the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony, their words. Okay? The word of God gives strength to live. A little vote time again. How many people think here, how many have ever gone through this experience where you've got up in the morning, you've thought, oh, I just feel dead, apathetic, discouraged, lacking motivation, whatever it is for you. I mean, there's different sort of manifestations of it. And you know what you should do, but you don't. But eventually, about half past 11, after three cups of coffee, you read something in the Word of God and the lights go on inside you and suddenly you're full of hope, optimism, strength and motivation. Please wave your hand if that's ever happened to you. How many people here would ascribe that not just to the coffee? Okay. See, the Word of God brings life. It brings life. Somehow... And and all the physicalness of life, it changes our emotions and the way we view ourselves and view circumstances. That's a very earthy thing. It's not some sort of mystical thing. 
If I know that God loves me, if I really have got a hold again that God loves me, that changes how I feel about myself and the situation and what I'm facing. If I've again understood and got a hold of the fact that God is my provider, somehow that puts strength in me when I look at the bank balance. Okay, it's very practical. It's very practical. The word of God brings strength. May even be physical strength. Who knows? Anyone ever had that experience? I have, actually. Andrew, were you there? Yes. Yes. And Peter was there as well. We carried an injured person through the African bush. We kept saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There you go. The word of God changes our thinking. That's good. How many people are always happy with their thoughts? <laughs> mm. Peter says, I've written these letters. This was in his second letter. That really helps because there was a first one. I've written these letters as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. 2 Peter chapter 3. To stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the prophets. I want you to remember, bring back to mind all that stuff in the Old Testament. I want you to, because that's what wholesomeness is about. Having the word of God in our minds. Okay. And the word of God releases faith. Okay. J.B. Masindi was here two weeks ago and was talking about this, about um, living by faith. But the word of God is important. Faith comes from hearing the message, Paul says in Romans. And the message is heard through the word about Christ, Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing something. It's not just, you've got to get a hold. See, biblical faith isn't just believing something randomly despite the evidence it's actually getting a hold of something and putting your life behind a person Jesus Christ the word for which there is something substantial to get hold of his word the word releases faith how do you get faith is a common, art, common question I hear sometimes. Well, I can't quite get into faith for this. Or Faith, it's very easy, the Bible says it. Faith comes by hearing or receiving what God has said. It starts with God's, earth, God's word. We need a, either receiving ear or reading eyes, one of the two, to get hold of it. And then a choice to believe and act upon See, faith isn't this sort of mystical, oh, I believe this against the evidence. Faith against the evidence. Faith always results in action. I act as if it were true. I haven't yet fully seen it to happen, but I act. Actually, a very simple test of faith. Are you acting upon it or not? If you're not, then it's probably not faith. Okay? I believe by faith that I'm forgiven for my sins. Well, that's great. That's great if it's in my brain. But do I walk around acting as if I'm forgiven for my sins? That's what faith is. Okay? I believe God is my provider. 
I have faith that God provides for me. Because the word of God says it. But actually, day by day, am I making decisions and putting my money and the way I manage my bank account or whatever's in my pocket or whatever level it is on the basis that God is my provider? See, that's faith. I think I'll get into that. Okay. God's word, a hearing ear, a choice to receive, and that pleases God because without faith, it's impossible to please. Bottom line, it's simply believing faith. Biblical faith is simply believing and acting as if God's word is true. And I'd put in brackets and subsequently finding out that it is. Okay, so three strong, powerful, important, dare I say, vital reasons that the word of God is important to us. It's truth. It's not just bits and pieces that are true. It is a whole framework of truth. It shows us how to live way and it provides life for us internally. Now, take a little breather. Stretch a little bit. Breathe deeply. Turn around say something nice and encouraging to your neighbour and then we're going to throw out a few practical ideas that may or may not help us. You've got 30 seconds to do that. Good. Actually, all of that was just an excuse for me to take a breather for a second and have a drink. I've got a very sore throat and I've had to have for a few days. Now, so, here's a nice little bit of symmetry. I've said that the word of God claims for itself that it is the way, that it is truth, and that it is life. Does that ring any bells for anybody? Jesus Christ, the word of God, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, how to read the word of God, and I'm primarily talking about the word of God written. I'm not really going to say what you should read, as in which bits of it or anything like that. Um, more just an approach to getting a hold of it. Um, Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Dwell means to hang out to have a home, to be welcome, and, you know, kind of take up space in you, okay? If someone dwells in my house, they take up a certain amount of space, physically and emotionally, it has to be said. Um, (laughs) If you have children, they dwell with you. They hang out with you. They take up space. They take up your time. They take up your resources. They take up your attention, Anybody that dwells with you does. Unless you've got a lodger that you never see. And that's not really dwelling with it. It means to hang out. And the word of God, 
we are encouraged is to hang out in us, to take up our time, our attention, and, and, and space. It's to hang out in us, richly. Now, I'm going to suggest um, various ways of approaching this, and if they don't land for you, well, that's fine. I'm not going to say what to read. There's loads of different ways of approaching that. But how to read. Um, the first one is what I would call devotional approach to the scripture. That is coming to it with the expectation that God is going to speak to me. This is all about my relationship with God. This is all about conversation. This is all about the... And of course that's okay. Because Jesus Christ, the word, wants to speak to us through his word. Now, this is what I call the everyday with Jesus approach. Anybody ever read Every Day with Jesus? It's great. It's really great. Okay? But there's an expectation as well as... There is some expectation of understanding being developed, but there's an expectation that there's an encounter with the living God there for you today when you read this book. That's good. That's very good. But having read a passage of Scripture... Maybe we just need a little bit of help. And there's a whole list of questions that you can ask yourself when you read a passage of Scripture. If the God speaking to you hasn't just jumped out straight at you, that you could ask. And they're this sort of thing. This is not original. Is there a promise to claim? It's a good checklist to have if you're reading the Scripture devotionally. Is there a promise to claim? Is there a warning to heed? Straight up, very simple. Is there something I just shouldn't do today that I perhaps might otherwise have done? Is there a command to obey? Is there something I should do rather than not do? Is there a principle to apply? In other words, that's not a direct command to do something. It's underlying this as a principle that applies to my situation. Is there a truth to believe? Is there a sin to avoid or repent of? Avoid means future, repent means past. Is there a lesson to learn? Is there a blessing to enjoy? You know, I think it's a huge stumbling block for some of us, actually believing that God wants to bless us. Do you know, I think um, we can get quite snide and cynical about prosperity teaching or whatever, but actually I think some of the time we've gone too far the other way and we actually don't believe that God really loves us enough to do us good. He just loves us. The Lord loves to bless his people. He wants us to feel good. He wants us to enjoy life. There are trials and hardships. There are seasons of dryness. We'll come to that later. But God's nature doesn't change. And throughout scripture you can see he loves to bless his people. Why? Because that reflects well on him. At least that's the best explanation I can give. Certainly nothing to do with me. Is there a prayer to pray? Either for yourself or someone else. Is there an encouragement to receive? Encourage, the word literally means to put strength into it's this strengthening thing. Is there something that I think, yes, life is now livable? Or is there something to get a hold of that will strengthen me today? Is there a thought to ponder? We'll come back to that in a little bit. Is there a response that I need to make just of worship to the Lord? Ten or twelve quick questions. 
any passage of scripture to read devotionally for, if you like, maybe this is doing it down a bit, devotion is kind of like immediate impact. It's to do with me and my relationship with God. God wanting to speak to me, his word for me today. A now living word. That's great. And we need to do that. Just as a caution, though, be careful not to apply too widely things that you know God has spoken to you personally. Don't make a big doctrine out of what God revealed to you. I hesitate to say leave that to the theologians because my next point is we're all theologians. So it includes you. But they can, and without sort of mentioning anything, I'm sure if you look around in, in the Christian world on the internet, you will see things before too long where someone has taken what was perhaps a word God spoke to them personally and applied it widely in a way that gets increasingly intractable. Okay? I once heard a testimony of someone who was reading one of the promises in the Old Testament which says, and the Lord says, I will take sickness out of the midst of thee. And they had a stomachache, they received the word of the Lord that he wanted to take pain out of the midst of him and was healed. I don't think that scripture is talking about God specifically dealing with stomachaches. But God spoke it to that person, they received it in faith, but I wouldn't write a book about it. Okay, you understand what I'm saying. Secondly, go to the opposite extreme, we can read the word of God theologically. Now, please don't, before I'm not going to do a quick Bible college on you here. Fortunately, Richard's not in the room, otherwise I'd have asked him to do it. By thinking theologically, we develop an understanding of God's ways, an understanding of his God's dealing with people, an understanding of his dealings with people through the flow of history, an understanding of truth. That takes some work. I'm not putting this against devotional. It's both and, not either or. And I think it's both and for everybody. The professional theologian still needs, dare I say it, to approach the word of God devotionally. And all of us need to have some grasp of the big picture of the word of God. Three quick keys. Whenever you read something in the Bible, if you're approaching it theologically, you always need to understand what kind of literature we're dealing with, what form of writing truth is expressed in. Narrative just isn't the same as a love poem. And love poems are just not the same as Proverbs. And Proverbs are not the same as letters. They're just not the same thing. And you can get into all sorts of problems if you treat them all in the same way. That's the first principle. Second one, in general, it's unlikely that a scripture is going to mean, in the big picture, something it didn't mean to the original recipients, in general. I'm not going to qualify that. I need to move on. And thirdly, I do this a lot if you're not careful. I probably did it in this message. But there is a big story 
there is a big picture of God's dealings. There is a big overarching meta-narrative of Scripture. That's why you can't be a committed postmodernist if you're a Christian. There is a big, big picture. And anything you read fits within that picture. And so if you get stuck in reading the book of Ezekiel about a whole load of judgments that are going on, it doesn't read like devotionally very good news, actually. It really doesn't. Hey, I thought this book was supposed to be good news. It actually seems like pretty bad news. I had a friend who was quite down once, and they said, Do you know, every time I pick up the word of God, I read something like Lamentations, and I just feel worse. <laughs> the pastoral heart in me said, well, you're stupid then, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> everything in Scripture is part of a bigger picture. As a rough, very rough and ready timeline... There's a big story starting with creation and ending with the final redemption and restoration of all things that goes through various phases. And if you get stuck in reading some of the difficult bits of Ezekiel, it does help to understand that it's God's call to a disobedient people to come back to his covenant of grace that he has for them, as for them as God's people in the Old Testament to be a demonstration of what it means to be the people of God to the nations in order that they might be blessed. All of that is kind of the context in which stuff about judgment and separation and going off into exile and harshness and all the rest, all fits within that. You think, well, where's the love of God in this? Well, the love of God is there, but you can't see it down the microscope. You've got to get your telescope or your wide-view camera to see the love of God in it. Okay, there's a lot more there. Mike Beaumont, who I can quote safely because he's several thousand miles away currently, um, calls this the tummy button approach. There you go. You've all got one. It's nothing to do with that, really, but it's something along the lines of this. What did it mean to them, T, the people who first received those words? What does it mean to us, global? Is there an application global throughout history, just generally? What does it mean to me personally? And what's my response to that? Them, us, me, my response. It's very easy just to dive in, read the word of God, and think, oh, crumbs, I've got to do something about that. You've got to understand the context that it's in. Very quickly then. Theologically is one extreme, if you like. Devotional is another. But actually, another way I find is really helpful, thirdly, is reading scripture thematically. Some years ago, I really struggled with the idea of the fatherhood of God. That was a personal issue for me. I struggled with understanding how true that was and what it meant if it was true. If I'm honest, I've been a Christian for a long time. So I did what every, every person should do when faced with that sort of situation. I went to a book of systematic theology and found that the fatherhood of God was hardly mentioned. So, being the stubborn so-and-so that I am, I went to a concordance and found every single reference in the Bible where the word father or fatherhood is mentioned and wrote it out on a piece of paper. That took a long time. (laughs) And then I sat back and read through what I'd read, written, and read through it again and again and again until I'd got hold of it, until it bore fruit in my life. 
and there's a time simply to approach, and that, this may be on a need basis, to approach the scripture thematically. And it may be according to your need. That took months, by the way, and I really didn't read much else. I think that's okay. Well, it was okay for me, anyway. But I, I, seriously, I think, if that's where you're at, there was another occasion um, where my wife, in her wisdom, perceived that I was just going through some thoughts and feelings about my identity and you know, what am I here for, kind of, you know, I don't want to get too sort of philosophical and West Coast American about this, but I was sort of stressing a bit about who I was and... So she said, well, why don't you go and see what the word of God says about who you are. Praise the Lord for a godly wife. She did the writing this time. She went to the scripture, dug out about 30 scriptures and said, here you are. I'm going to write them down for you. I want you to read them and get a hold of it. I read them on the bus. I read them in my lunch breaks. I read them and read them and read them until I got a hold of who I was in Christ. There are times when a thematic approach is valid because that's where life is for you. Okay, just a couple of personal testimonies. Um, study aid kind of things can be really helpful with that. I brought a few along. These are ones that we just had knocking around at home. Very much knocking around. This is an old favourite of mine. Consider him, J. Oswald Sanders, a devotional classic. Anyone ever heard of this? Simply, day by day, takes you through who Jesus Christ is. The love of Christ, the unchanging Christ, the returning Christ, the ascended Christ, the crucified Christ, the suffering Christ, the preciousness of Christ, day by day by day through the scriptures. Now these, have inter- they're not just reading the Bible, they have some interpretation with it as well, but that can be great. What I'm doing at the moment, anybody notice it's Lent? I'm reading John Piper's The Passion of Jesus Christ. Day by day, every day, a little reading about what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross and why he did it. Use the seasons. If it's a particular season, Advent, Lent, or whatever, use that as a theme. That's great. Okay? This one here, um, not plugging anyone's book in particular, but it's Why Jesus is Good News by David Perry. Is Dave here? Perhaps not. Um, I have a little confession to make, actually. My son has this book, and um, I went to bring it in as an example. It's, it's, it expounds the Gospel of Mark. But it's, it's a kind of mixture between thematic Bible study and devotion. It's great. It just goes through the book of Mark, why Jesus is good news. And I went to get it from Christopher's room, and I couldn't find it. Um, I asked him to go and get it. He couldn't find it. I suspect it's buried in his bed. Uh, anything that can't be found in his room is normally buried in his bed. Um, I looked there. I found guitar magazines. I found a plectrum. I found various other things. I didn't find this, but it's probably under the pillow or something. Anyway. Um, and the handbook of Bible promises. Do you know sometimes... All we can do is hold on to the promise of the word of God. There's times when life just batters us around and all we can do is just go to the promises of the word of God. Mike Bone wants the handbook of Bible promises. I found really helpful. They're listed thematically. And it's quite okay to go to the scripture thematically according to your need and get a hold of what the, good, the word of God says to us. These approaches, theological, devotional, the, thematic, are not 
mutually exclusive. They can all be happening at once. You can read something theologically and devotionally at the same time. Final couple of things, and then we're there. You can read the Word of God reflectively. Don't read too much, but just let it swill around in your brain for a while. In general, most of us have a daily mail approach to the Word of God far too frequently. That is, unless it's immediately obvious and immediately true, I won't bother with it. Sorry, am I... Sorry, which paper did you know? I don't want to know. But it's not what I mean. It's like, unless, unless I can immediately get hold of it, then, then it's, I can't be bothered. I'm only saying that against myself. Sometimes it does take a while to swill the words around in your brain and reflect on it. It may take you two weeks to get through a paragraph of scripture. It may take you two months. Do it if that's the way you need to approach it. I think sometimes, and I have to be careful what I'm saying here, could get heretical. The everyday with Jesus approach, or my, my discipline of reading the scripture every day, which is a good thing, can lead me to gloss over it. I believe in reading the scriptures regularly. But sometimes, if you just move on to the next thing and move on to the next thing, or what's the passage for the day, you can miss a depth that needs reflecting on and teasing out. Finally, one I'd like to highlight, and this is, again, something probably... We possibly don't do enough, and that's getting a hold of the word of God relationally. That is, with other people. We're in a very individualistic society along the basis of, unless I get it for myself, it's probably not true. But actually, the New Testament culture was that preaching the word of God was a communal experience. People, that was the only way they received it. They read, read the Old Testament scriptures, but even the Old Testament scriptures were read publicly. There's all sorts of creative ways you go and see your missional community leader or whatever. But I think there's an important aspect of getting the word of God into us that only happens with other people, provoking us, helping us, explaining us, giving perspective that we daren't lose hold of. Back to roots again, and this is where I'll finish. Being the biologist, um, I've got some pictures of things rooted. And on the left, uh, some prairie flowers. You can see the cracking desert underneath. And on the right, there's a cross-sectional view of said prairie flowers with the line, horizontal line, a third of the way down, uh, being the ground level. And like an iceberg, what's under the surface is much more extensive than what's on the surface. And in a dry place... A desert plant has a huge root system to get hold of what little moisture there is. Actually, I haven't shown on there. Some of the roots go out sideways a huge distance to catch the dew. But these are root systems of some prairie plants. I won't go into the Latin names. They are up there for those who are interested. Um, <laughs> to fill this morning, God wanted to say to some people who are in a dry place with God right now, in a dry place, your roots go deeper. And the temptation is to withdraw. If I feel relationally out of sorts with someone, for whatever reason, I tend to withdraw. I'm a coward normally. Um, anybody identify with that? But if I'm relationally out of sorts with the Lord, the temptation is to withdraw, but actually the roots need to go deeper. Deeper.
feel that's a word for someone this morning, that you need to go deeper into the promises of God and get a hold of those again, even if everything around you seems dry right now. I believe God wants to encourage you that part of the way through the dryness of that season is in the depth of your roots, in the word of God. If it is really true that the word of God is living, if it really is true that the word of God is a person, ultimately, then the only way through the dry time with God, the time when nothing seems to be happening, I don't know where God's going, I've not even heard him speak to me, if it's really true, even if you've not heard him speak to you, the answer is in the word of God for you. I believe that's an encouragement for someone this morning. Derek Prince put it like this. The place of the Bible, the place the Bible has in our lives is the place that Christ has in our lives. I wanted to challenge some people this morning to love the Lord with all your mind in the way you approach the word of God. That we can love the Lord emotionally We can sing songs that declare our love. We can love the Lord in terms of our allegiance. But there's a love of the Lord that can be manifest in our mind in the way that we handle his word. And I believe there's a challenge for some this morning to love the Lord through what you think, ponder, and get hold of in his word. I'd like to pray this morning for those who know that they've got a call on their life with respect to words, using words. Two things, just in general. If you know that words are important to you and what God would have you to do in whatever context, I'd like to pray that they'd be words of life. But actually also we do want to pray for those out there who know that the word of God is something important in terms of what you'd give yourself to, whether you're aspiring to be a theologian, a preacher, or whatever, that the word of God is important in, and it's important to all of us, but important, you know, you know that that's something God has given you to be involved with and to do. I would like to pray for you Um, at the end. The word of God is a person. Jesus Christ. We encounter him through his written word. Word, spirit and person work together. And then the foundation of our relationship and therefore discipleship with Jesus Christ.